Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider speculative fiction. What is it? What's it like to write it? Or at least that's what we set out to consider. <laughs> Turns out our guest has a range of interesting experiences, so we ended up covering a lot more. Yes. Mark Ashiro is the award-winning author of Anger is a Gift and Each of Us a Desert, two young adult novels. Each of Us a Desert is speculative fiction and Anger is a Gift is realistic. Anger won the 2019 Schneider Family Book Award and was a Lambda Literary Award finalist for Best LGBTQ Children's or Young Adult Book. Mark's middle grade debut, The Insiders, is due out in 2021. Yeah, and just to give a quick definition before we get started, we asked Mark to define speculative fiction for us because I think there's a lot of confusion about it. In fact, I know there is because I have been very confused about it. <laughs> it's any sort of literature that imagines beyond what currently exists. So it's an umbrella term and it encompasses things like horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and dystopian literature. Anyway, we actually started off talking to Mark about their first book, the contemporary realistic fiction, Anger is a Gift, which tells the story of a high school student named Moss who lost his father to police brutality and how he responds when metal detectors and the police show up at his school. Mark has said that their own experiences provided the inspiration for that book. We noted that the book has been very successful, and we asked them about the experiences underlying it. It is correct to, to say that it's a successful book, but I am one of those stories where it was very slow. It was not immediately successful at all. It did fine, but it took months and months of doing school visits and doing events for it to start picking up steam, especially in the last six months. The interest in the book has sort of gained a new life because so much of our country is having this very public reckoning with police violence and police brutality. I've spent so much time, especially since June, talking with young people about what police violence is, what it means, what its ramifications are physically, as well as with mental health. That means that I am very often asked to recount exactly how much of it is autobiographical. <laughs> you know, I was a teen activist. I was the editor of my high school newspaper. So I was involved in political and social issues as a teenager. While it might not be specific instances, I was very much involved in social movements within my high school to change things. We had a huge, huge issue, particularly around a, an ad that we ran for a health clinic in our, our city. And I went to school in Riverside, California. And one of the services advertised for this clinic was for contraceptives. Our principal at the time and the school board at the time had a fit. They were very upset and believed that we were promoting an agenda, that we were telling kids to go get pregnant and then go get abortions, all because of just this one little line. And the school administration confiscated every issue of that paper after it went oh, out. God. Wow. So I wrote this scathing editorial with the help of both my editorial team and my teacher about how not only 
morally were they wrong, but actually technically in California, that was illegal because we were a self-funded paper, which meant that the school had no grounds to censor us. It ended up winning awards. We ended up being able to reprint our paper because of it. So I think about stuff like that. And then when I hear people say it's unrealistic that kids are involved in social change, I just think it means that the kids you know are not involved with it. And even then I would say, actually, they probably are. You just haven't noticed. So part of it comes from that. The other part comes from more of my activists as an activist in my 20s when I started getting really involved with local movements, with going to protests, pretty much any scene involving a protest or an interaction with the police almost none of those are actually fiction. There might be elements of them that I fictionalize, but they are all drawn from my many years as an activist. And some of those experiences were deeply upsetting. I tell people that on a very base level, I am Moss in many ways. I have actually the same diagnosis. I have PTSD from an interaction with the police, which is oftentimes made worse because I also have anxiety and depression. I decided to put more of myself into the story because I felt it just made it like that much more real. Yeah, sure. I'm just curious, and I I don't want to ask anything that makes you uncomfortable at all. So yeah, just you know. Oh, let's go. Let's can, do it. No, no, no. But the <laughs> the particular moment that you experienced that was so traumatic for you is that one that you include in the book? And do you want to say anything about yeah. it or no? Well, it's a little weird because it's all in the last act. So it involves like very, very intense spoilers. But I will say we have these conversations about what a good cop is versus a bad cop, what a good person is versus a bad person. And the thing that's missing in there is that goodness requires action. You can't just think a good thought. You can't just think, I want things to be better. I'm sorry this happened. And in these instances, here's someone with power who actually could have stopped it, who could have intervened and said, hey, stop doing this to this person. That's all it took, just someone else saying no, but they stayed quiet. So Anger is a Gift is obviously very much realistic fiction, but your current book, Each of Us a Desert, is speculative fiction. What do you think draws you to write about other worlds? I always intended to be a genre author, like someone who writes within speculative fiction, because that's what I grew up with. I grew up reading Stephen King. I grew up reading Edgar Allan Poe. I remember discovering Octavia Butler and how much her writing and her way of thinking about the world and also other worlds affected me so much. I like writing about another world to put distance between myself and this one. But the other thing that's really interesting about speculative fiction is you can write about our world in a way that isn't quite the same when you're doing contemporary fiction. And I say that now as someone who has, my first book is contemporary, very realistic fiction set in our world to a secondary world fantasy where I got to create my own world. There are just things you can do on a craft level, on a metaphorical level, that are just so thrilling as a creator. In Each of Us a Desert in particular, one of the elements of the story is this whole myth of the guantistas, these people who have this magical ability to take on people's stories and then return them to their god. And I was grappling with a lot of what I was dealing with as a teenager. I was a teenage convert to Catholicism, And one of the things that was really difficult for me to understand in practice and witnessing it was the act of confession on two Mm -hmm. levels. One, I remember asking this question of one of the sisters and she was so puzzled by it. And and this is 17 year old me asking a genuine question, which was, do the fathers, do they, do they get therapy? 
And they were, they were like, what? It's a great question. What do they do with all those sins? <laughs> well, but that's the thing is, you know, we're being taught what the sacrament of confession is and how important it is to be honest. You have to go into that sacrament with your heart open and to be vulnerable. And there's something so beautiful about that. And then the flip side being, but what about the person who has to receive that? The ugliest thing you ever did, the worst thing you ever did, the secret you're not going to tell anyone else. And now this person knows it. And I'm just like, yo, it's got to be really hard to hear that all the time. And they were like, no, you know, they have the counsel of God. They don't need to talk to anyone. And I just was like, no, I feel like maybe you do. And so I struggled with that. And then also watching people who use confession as a sort of like spiritual shower. Like, I'm going to go in, I'm going to say these things, and I'm just going to wash this all clean. But then I'm going to just go back out in the world and get dirty again. And as long as I'm like cleansing myself and doing this, I can do whatever I want in the world as long as I confess it. And so you have both of these things that are very real world issues that a lot of Catholics struggle with, and even people of other faiths who may not actually participate in this specific sacrament. But I got to take them and make them magical. What if there is a person who can pull stories out of people's bodies? What does that physically feel like? If you know the edges of a person's story, you know the sharp angles of it? What if it's a physical thing, like a bad meal, you know, or like a poison? And what does it feel like to know all the secrets of everyone around you? You get to exaggerate in speculative fiction, but at the same time, you can address it in these really intimate, fascinating ways. It does seem like speculative fiction of many types is really growing right now. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think the fact that there are so many more deals for things that you would fall under the speculative fiction umbrella than there have been in a long time, I think is an amazing sign of not only the growth, but just the willingness publishers have to publish things off the beaten path to get a little strange. So why do you think this is a moment of growth? And also, I know that queer speculative fiction is really growing as a genre. Is that only about long overdue representation? Or are there other reasons that speculative fiction, that books that could contain magic or things that are not of our world, lend themselves to the expression of queer stories or of the stories of oppressed groups? I love that you brought up that it's not just this overdue moment for a lot of us, because I do think that plays a part in it. And I think we are seeing that publishers are realizing like, oh, wait, other people buy books? Other people appreciate having books marketed to them and represented by them. I don't think this is always the best rubric to measure things by because, you know, the New York Times bestseller list is not actually a bestseller list. But if you look at what is represented on that list and how it changes, the fact that this year we had Aidan Thomas's Cemetery Boys, one of my favorite books of 2020, the first queer Latinx young adult book to hit the list from a queer Latinx author. You have Legend. Born by Tracy Dion hitting the list. You have so many authors who belong to these groups that have been ignored by the publishing industry. And for so many of us, it's a struggle to get our books published. So yeah, I think that is part of it. I also wonder if because we are in such a tumultuous time, what we're seeing now is speculative fiction, developing new worlds, you know, reimagining old myths or whatnot. But what I love about it is a lot of the fiction we're seeing still has like one foot in our world, one foot in a new one, Mm -hmm. where we're grappling with this major upheaval that's happening 
not just in the United States, but all over the world, people are increasingly finding new ways to address what's happening, to grapple with it, and also to imagine something else. I love that point about speculative fiction allowing us to grapple with the realities of our actual world. I think setting problems and crises in the speculative world gives us the distance that we sometimes need to consider what's at the heart of our problems and what has to happen for us to address them. Yeah. And nothing makes this more clear than Mark's book, Each of Us a Desert, this central idea in the book of the Quintista physicalizing a spiritual process. In the world of Mark's book, people must confess their sins to the Quintista. They get physically sick if they don't. And in turn, the Quintista feels physically ill while holding on to another person's secrets and must give up the stories to their God. They literally vomit up the story into the earth, after which they forget the story. So Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting way of illustrating the corrosive nature of shame and secrecy, as well as the Catholic concept of guilt and confession that Mark talked about. Yeah, I really found that fascinating. And this is actually also the point where we left speculative fiction to talk about something else that turned out to be fascinating, which has to do with Mark's experience as a sensitivity reader for the past four years. We asked them about that experience. If you're not familiar with the term, a sensitivity reader, or sometimes they're called cultural reader, authenticity reader, it is someone who does an edit on a manuscript, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, or poetry or a script or whatever, but it's a targeted edit. You are editing for a specific experience, a specific identity. Generally speaking, the reads are done for someone who belongs to a disenfranchised, marginalized group who is represented in that body of work in some form. Sometimes a read is a whole book. Sometimes I'll get a manuscript and it's, this character is only in this one chapter. Will you give it a look? And generally speaking, what I'm doing is not reading, there's not a authenticity that's like, this is perfect and represents all people, but is there anything in this that fulfills a stereotype, you know, either a racial stereotype, a cultural stereotype, any of those sort of things? I often think of it as, is there something in this text that is going to pull a reader out? That they're suddenly going to, especially if they're part of that group and they're going to read it and they're like, oh, wait, uh, no, 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 that rings false. That's not how we do it. That's not how the experience was for me. Very rarely are we actually solving an issue for someone. Most of the time when I'm doing a sensitivity read, I just want to point it out and say, hey, this made me uncomfortable or, hey, this definitely fulfills a stereotype. Sometimes, every once in a while, I'll be like, I would suggest doing this or whatnot. But I think there's this mistaken belief that sensitivity readers, like we're going in and we're changing people's stories and then giving it back to them. When the vast majority of us never do anything of the sort, we're just suggesting possible solutions, but mostly pointing out. Um, I have done, I'll just say this. If you have read a New York Times bestselling YA book in the last four years, you've read one that I've sensitivity read. I've done close to three or 400 of them in the last four years. Oh my goodness. Um, Yeah, it's pretty frequent. As far as I know, it's pretty accepted at most of the major houses. I tend to only want to read books where you have queer characters, where you have Latinx characters, where you have characters dealing, you know, things that I've been through where I can provide feedback. I've had to do some very uncomfortable sensitivity reads where my feedback is from a premise level, this is bad. 
this is incredibly harmful. Most of us who do sensitivity reads, we sign NDAs for mm-hmm. good reason. Having that space where it is between you and an editor, you're in the space where you may have done something harmful or put in a stereotype that you had no idea existed. And then the beauty of it is that you are in this space where you can make a change and you can make a change that fundamentally does not change your novel and you still get to tell the same story. Or in some of the bigger ones, you get to fundamentally change it and make it better. When I have to give like the really difficult feedback, I often code it with, I want your story to be better. And I want this book to be better. And I want this book to hit. I can see what you're intending. Here are the things that hit absolutely on the right marks that are so thrilling and exciting. Here are the things that take me out of the manuscript that make it hard for me to just disappear into the story. Because that's something any reader you don't have to be part of a marginalized group to have that. You've had an experience where you're reading a book and you're, and all of a sudden you're like, um, no, that's not how that happens. It's exactly the same when it comes to things like race or gender or sexual orientation, gender identity. We all have moments where someone just doesn't know something. And it really is okay not to know. You can't know what you don't know. Any feedback is hard. Feedback stings. <laughs> it sucks to get criticism. It sucks to see flaws pointed out in your writing. Well, and we nobody wants to be culturally insensitive. So to find out that you have been is just it's yeah. embarrassing. It's, mm-hmm. You feel bad about yourself. But there's no reason know? for just... me to flagellate you or self-flagellation. What is best is do the work to make it better. I had a sensitivity read for the middle grade novel that I have coming out in May. And it shifted in a pretty profound way how I think about writing when it comes to race. So I loved hearing about Mark's experience with that. I had had this notion that used to be, I think, pretty prevalent, which was I wouldn't identify anyone's race in my writing, in part out of fear. The fear was if I do identify race, then I might inadvertently say something that was wrong in some way, which I certainly don't want to do. Mm -hmm. So I told myself, don't identify races. Readers can decide for themselves. But of course, in the world that we live in, often the default then becomes white. And that's a big problem, obviously, because books then become just the sea of white, which is not reality and which is harmful for all kids. So I rewrote to add identifying characteristics for everyone's race. And then we had a sensitivity reader read that version, and she made a great point that I hadn't seen. So a lot of my story takes place in a department store that has a white owner. So most of the people of color, and also most of the people who are white, were in the roles of employees to a white boss. Mm -hmm. I couldn't change that because that was the reality of that setting. But I could add other characters who weren't white, who played roles that weren't defined in relation to someone who's white in the vein of employee to boss. So for example, I could and did add friends for the main character, family members, doctors, or what have you. They could be people of color and play a different and important role. Mm -hmm. The book is so much better as a result of that read, sensitivity readers play such a valuable role and they're compensated for it, which is really, of course, important. 
Yeah. I've never worked with a professional sensitivity reader. And when I wrote Blue, the publisher didn't bring in a sensitivity reader the way I know a lot of publishers are bringing them in now. And I think I've told you this story. There's a scene in The Truth According to Blue where Blue is trying to convince her parents to let her do something that's illegal. And she makes this huge speech about how sometimes it's really important to break the rules in order to do the right thing. And she says, you know, think about Gandhi and Rosa Parks breaking the rules. And her father looks at her and says, did you just compare yourself to Gandhi? You know, so, you know, he's not having any of it. But even so, my editor flagged it and said, this is an example of a white person appropriating the achievements of people mm -hmm. of color to bolster mm -hmm. their own situation, which I totally get. Yeah, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't yeah. occur to me. And it mm -hmm. feels like there's a little bit of grayness here too, because, you know, isn't it also a good thing to show a white person holding up people of color as heroes? It's so complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it can be complicated. So I, I took my editor's advice and that meant that I had to think of white people to be examples. So I chose Henry Hudson. And then it was actually really hard. I wanted to find a woman and I was thinking, what about a suffragist? I was trying, I had a really hard time coming up with a historical figure who was female that a seventh grader was likely to know about who was white who wasn't super racist because mm -hmm. most of the suffragists were like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So in the end, I chose Clara Barton. And if you happen to know that Clara Barton was really racist, please don't tell me <laughs> because <laughs> it's too late to do anything about it. But I did have a different kind of experience with a sensitivity reader. Um, my sister has type 1 diabetes and Blue, the main character in my book, has type 1 diabetes. And she read Blue for me and found a lot of small details that I had wrong. And I have to say, a number of reviews that I've gotten from people with diabetes have focused on what a relief it was for them to read a book that's accurate. And I could not have done that without a sensitivity reader. I think that's the point about difference. You can't get difference right without input from someone with direct experience. Yeah. And I love that this role has come about because without it really, what is the alternative? You know, I hate this notion of white people not being able to include any people of color in their books because they might get it wrong. Of course, I understand own voices and I support that. but you still do want books to be representative and you want authors to be able to write a range of experiences and think about a range of experiences in a way that's not harmful. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And sensitivity readers allow us to do that respectfully and sensitively, right? And accurately. Yeah. So I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Mark at www.markashiro.com or on Instagram at markdoesstuff. Ashiro is spelled O-S-H-I-R-O.
Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and Eve.